Last week we began this new series of sermons called Dare to Be a Daniel with a sermon that was titled Cooperation Without Compromise. Since then, I learned that one of the leaders of the restoration movement during the last half of the 20th century, um, 50s, 60s, 70s, a guy by the name of James DeForest Murch uh, wrote a book, important book in terms of the history of our churches called Christians Only. Um, he had actually written a book called, by this very thing, Cooperation Without Compromise. It was a book that he wrote because there were threats regarding division that were taking place in the Christian churches and churches of Christ. And in the book, he gives us a very important reminder. One that Daniel and his friends uh, would have concurred with. He said, Christianity is a great movement originated by Jesus Christ. Now, Daniel and his friends wouldn't have known that. They'd have only looked forward to it. Unless, when we get to the fourth man in the fire, we find out that they, in fact, did have interaction with Jesus in his precarnation state. It had its roots in his Messianic ministry in Judea and Galilee, but prior to his death on the cross, it existed only in embryonic form. Here's the line that Daniel and his friends certainly would have agreed with. Christianity is both a doctrine and a life. He stressed life because many at that time were focusing on personal beliefs and doctrine to the exclusion of living a Christian lifestyle. And Daniel and his friends knew the importance of living in a manner that was consistent with what they professed to believe. And the important point of emphasis that we saw last Sunday, reconsidered in Murch's cooperation without compromise, is in fact the need to be living out the faith in the world without being of the world. Prepositions are so important. Living out the faith in the world without being of the world. And as we begin to look at the second chapter of Daniel, I want to stress that the writer was giving a thought out and very intentional presentation. It's what's been defined, and those of you who at one time or another have been a part of the Wednesday night Bible studies, you'll recognize it right away. It's what's been defined as a chiastic structure based on the Greek word, letter, chi, shaped like an X. And this literary device is common in ancient writing, both Christian and non-Christian, in which they will say something, but then at the end they'll revisit it. They'll say something else and another thing, and then the focus is here. It's the whole point of this literary structure. And notice that what is being emphasized in this second chapter is how Daniel and his friends, in fact, pray to God in the midst of the problem that they're going through. 
And as we move into chapter 2, there is also a very interesting change that occurs that you don't see in English translations except for the phrase, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. We're going to come to that when we read the text. Verse 4. Because from Daniel chapter 2 verse 4 all the way to chapter 7 verse 28 the earliest texts have that section in Aramaic. The introduction in Hebrew that whole section in Aramaic and then returning to Hebrew for the conclusion of the book. Now there are many many suggestions as to why that might be the case. But I think uh, it, it, the best understanding is, is that there is a separation of that material that points to the importance of that material. The first part is an introduction in Hebrew. Then it comes to the language that was known worldwide at that time, Aramaic. Then it comes back to the Hebrew again to say, okay, let's look at this in terms of the big picture and what it all means. And chapters 8 to 12 expand on the pattern of world history that has already been set forth in the chapters that are there in 2 to 7. So, uh, interestingly, by the way, chapters 2 to 7 also form a chiastic structure like this where what's presented in chapters 3 and chapter 6 are narratives about miraculous divine deliverances. Chapters 4 and 5 describe God's judgment on the world so that the motifs that are implied in chapters 2, 3, and 4 reappear in reverse order in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Again, bringing our focus then to chapters 4 and chapter 5. Uh, just some, some of those little things that you probably won't remember, but some of you might. And as you're reading ahead, it, it starts to make this chap- book of Daniel kind of come together uh, as, a, as a unit, a whole. But what, what, what the ch- change is occurring? Change is occurring throughout the book of Daniel. The, for instance, chapter 1, we saw last Sunday began with a national a national crisis. Israel is being taken into exile. And because of that, because of being taken into captivity, that became a personal problem for Daniel and his friends. Now in chapter 2, it's going to begin with a personal problem, a personal crisis for King Nebuchadnezzar that then will quickly become a national crisis change. But not just for the sake of change. Some of you remember, I know Rob will, some of you will remember a song that was back in the 60's. Uh, Now I know Rob was just born at that time. He's a little younger than me, but he'll know the song. The song goes like this. Come, mothers and fathers throughout the land, and don't criticize what you don't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out the new one. 
if you can't lend a hand. For the times, they are changing. The times are changing. Now, that sounds very contemporary. But Dylan's song was actually from the early 60s, 64, 65. And it could have been a popular song all the way back in Daniel's time. Daniel lived in a time of radical change where even the things that were tied down and locked in were changing. He and his friends never dreamt that the throne of David would be displaced, that they would be taken into captivity, that they would be as educated youth of Israel, part of the nobility we saw last Sunday, that they would be radically re-educated. They would have to give up their culture. Their future was going to be a new culture. And they took on new names, a new language, a whole new life in a foreign land. I don't know if you realize it, but there is no book in the Bible that's filled with more change than Daniel. Fourteen references to Hebrew words that deal with change. More than any other book in the Bible. And the key verse for you this morning is found in verse 3, I think. Where Nebuchadnezzar says, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know that dream. Let's go to God's Word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, from this point on until chapter 7 verse 28, the text in the original is in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show the interpretation. The king then answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards. And great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I'll know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. May God add his blessing to our reading of this portion of his word today. If nothing else, in the first four verses of the text that we just read, we should be seeing that change can be hard. And that's putting it mildly. As we look at the situation in our text, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is growing increasingly agitated. Change can be hard. More accurately, we could say that in many cases, change is nearly impossible. It was common at that time, by the way, for a king to tell his wise men his dream, and they would interpret it. That is, if he knew what the dream was. It wouldn't have been all that tough for them because as the so-called experts of that day, they had literally had books of dream interpretations. And so, you tell me your dream, I look it up in my book as the expert, and I tell you what your dream means. But in this case, they were going to be challenged in a way they had never been challenged. By this time, there's a nerve-wracking change going on for them. Did you notice what the king said? He was agitated. His agitation was growing. He told them, my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Not to know the interpretation of the dream, but to know the dream. I've been there. Maybe you have. In fact, there have been many times that I have woke up to Jesse saying, Chauncey, Chauncey, wake up. I would be very agitated in my sleep. I would be very vocal. I talk in my sleep. Fortunately, she said she doesn't understand much what I, what I say. Uh, she does remember the one dream in which I dreamt. He had never attacked me in my life. I had never seen him abusive. But in one of my dreams, my Uncle Jack, my dad's brother, was coming at me to attack him, and I let him have it three times right in the back of her head. Before he woke, she woke me up. That night she did say, you were calling out your Uncle Jack's name. 
I'm just glad she wasn't facing me that night in bed. <laughs> but I've been there. I've been there when I would have a very agitated, very troublesome dream and not remember what the dream was. And that seems to be the case in this account with Nebuchadnezzar. There's more than one clue that he, he doesn't know what it is. He wants to know. And so he tells them, I want to know the dream and the interpretation. That wasn't the normal way of doing things. They weren't prepared for that. I'm sure there were some of them that were saying, and I quote, we've never done it like that here before. And he probably said, I don't care about that either. Thousands of years from now, Chauncey's going to say he doesn't care if you've never done it like that before. Just kidding. Um, they weren't prepared for that. And the result was that they went from being the favored class to the condemned class. All the wise men were to be executed. And that included Daniel and his friends. And I think it's safe to assume that none of the wise men liked that change. They certainly wouldn't have viewed it as progress. But a terrible change in circumstances that was hard to accept. Without the content of the dream, the experts had no way to anticipate the events that were to follow. Or, if you will, to interpret it. So in verse 4 that we read, and again in verse 7, the experts remind the king that the interpretation is based on the content of the dream. And the anxiety of the king, which prompted the dream, which resulted in growing agitation, is compounded by his inability to remember the dream. And that raises, in fact, a very disturbing application. Because the Babylonians believed that if a man could not remember a dream, that meant that his personal God was angry with him. And the experts couldn't meet the king's demand and tell him his dream. They wouldn't be of much help. In fact, he would then have them dismembered and their homes would be in ruined. I have a feeling that when that word came to Daniel, he might have remembered what Ezekiel had said in chapter 16 when Jerusalem had in fact sold herself to idols and idolatry and God said, you're going to be cut in pieces and your homes are going to be placed in ruin." And that brings us to the acknowledgement. Verses 10 to 13. The experts knew that they hadn't and they wouldn't receive the necessary divine revelation to tell Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of his dream, far less what the dream was. And they freely admit so. You heard it. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they don't live among men. Is this possibly one of the first clues in Daniel 
that as we move on into the story, we're going to find out that in fact God did choose to live among men. And that God did choose to have a human being, fully human, fully divine, live on earth who could in fact tell and know these kinds of things. You see, the ob- obvious accusation that had been raised in verses 8 and 9 was that they were stalling. They couldn't fulfill His demands and they realized that His word was firm and that He would stick with His planned punishment which brings us then to their acknowledgement in verses 10 to 13. And what an acknowledgement it is. They're admitting that they are totally unprepared for the task at hand. And this they also freely admit. What the kings ask is too difficult. Wouldn't that kind of honesty actually be refreshing today? Wouldn't it be refreshing to hear Congress say, wow, this is really too tough. We don't know what to do. So we're going to put some lines out here for the American citizens to call in and we'll have people answering and we can get a feeling for what you actually want as a country instead of sitting there and assuming they know it all and they can make their decisions for us, which are supposed to be on our behalf, but obviously seldom are. As a result, they know they're doomed. Unless the king forgets the incident, and he's not going to forget. Rather, agitated and angered by their stall tactics, he orders their execution. And he orders them to also execute Daniel and his friends because even though they weren't present, according to the account of the story we're told, they are condemned by default Because, as we're told back in chapter 1, that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, they had been found ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom. They were considered not only a part of that group, but the cream of the crop of that group. And so the printed text that we read ends with them hunting for Daniel and his friends also to execute them. Now what we don't know yet that will be revealed in the verses ahead, that's right, I should have had a screen that said to be continued. But I didn't want you to get as mad as I used to get as a kid when one of my shows all of a sudden ended and said to be continued. We don't know yet how God's going to intervene to resolve this dangerous situation. And in the meantime, what what can we take from this introduction to the second chapter? In his book titled Getting the Message, Daniel Doriani says that there are four questions that we should ask ourselves each and every time we read God's Word. The first question is, what should I do? It's a question of duty. What duty, what is the Bible telling me that I then should do because of what I just read? The second question is the question, who am I? 
It's a question of character. Because of what I just read, who am I in relationship to that, in relationship to God, in relationship to my neighbors? The third question is, where should we go? It's a question of our goals. What does this text say to us in terms of what we should be planning for next year at this time? For five years from this time? One of the things that we discussed at our board meeting this past week is that we have been negligent as a camp board in not having a group who are sitting down making strategic plans for the future. We basically, over the last course of a decade or so, have been reacting instead of being proactive. And I shared with them that that's why we got ourselves into the problem we did with our swimming pool. They gave us a 25-year guarantee on a, a pool 35 to 40 years ago. And we had no plan as to what to do when the end of that 25 years came. And the fourth question Doriani says that we should ask is, how can this passage help me to see? It's a question of discernment. How by reading what we just read, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 2 of Daniel, how can we have better discernment in terms of how to respond, how to react, how to plan on dealing with those troublesome times. So here's my challenge for you for this week. I want us to realize that even when, in the words of those Chaldeans and magicians, even when there is no man on earth who can answer our questions, there is still a source we can see. And that's our Redeemer God. We don't need shelf upon shelf upon shelf of self-help books. We just need to read and study and meditate on the book that we've been given. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we come before you many times agitated, many times concerned. Help us to realize that while there is no man on earth, there is the word that he left behind for us. There is the tradition of the church the way things have been done and how those were there to meet needs and, and while the needs have changed and we might have to change methodology, we know that the Word is secure, that You are the, the God of the past, the God of the present, and the God of the future. And so help us as we now look forward to the rest of the message of Daniel with these questions in mind. What is our duty? What is the message for me in terms of what I need to know, how I need to respond, who I am as a person, and what this can help us, how this can help us in terms of better at being able to see what it is you're communicating. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.